I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never gonna get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre Richard, along with my co-host, Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. How's it going, Bitstein? Uh, it's going very well. 
So we've got a very, very special guest tonight, uh, my very own wife, Morgan Rochard. Morgan, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So I wanted to have Morgan on, uh, first of all, so that she would stop pestering me about coming on, um, but also because she's actually Extreme nepotism. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but also there's some merit there. Uh, in the, just, just a small amount. <laughs> it's not nepotism if it's not your children, right? I think if oh, it's your spouse. You then... give your spouse a job, but you can't give your kids a job. And well, it's not considered nepotism. Every president gives his spouse a job of being first lady or first man in the future. Ah, okay. so. so am I like the first lady of noted? Yes. And you're the second lady on noted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second lady. And you're also the kind of the first person who's not, when, when asked on the street what they are, your immediate response is not a Bitcoiner. That's true. Yes, Whereas I reply that. <laughs> all past guests, I think, would be pretty quick to uh, reply with the, that label on themselves. Um, so why don't you, you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your, your professional background. You don't need to tell them about our relationship. <laughs> You don't want me to start airing all of our dirty laundry on the air. <laughs> um, so I own a registered investment advisor. Um, my firm will be about five years old this August, which is really exciting. And um, I also own a financial coaching practice called Money Owners. Um, I would say that I spend more time for sure in Origin, which is my registered investment advisor, um, where I advise mostly young families, um, lots of small business owners, on how to be responsible with their money and what they should be doing, how to invest, um, how to really just save, be wealthy, and live a high-quality lifestyle. So, like, this topic is probably one of the most controversial for Bitcoiners, even more controversial than, than the block size limit, which is, like, how, how, much, how, how many Bitcoins should one own, for what purpose, for how long? Like all these questions are hotly debated on Twitter all the time. So, um, yeah, Michael. Well, well given given that you know the important question is, do you put in ninety percent of your net worth or ninety five percent of your net worth into bitcoins <laughs> or ninety nine point nine nine percent? Right, right. Can we start this podcast with um, nothing? I'm about to say is specific investment advice. And should not be misconstrued to be any kind of investment advice geared towards specific people. I don't want to get in trouble with the SEC and my compliance consultant. Yeah, but that's just <laughs> that's just legalese. And usually, when someone says that, it's because they're about to give investment <laughs> advice. <laughs> Same thing when they say like past performance is not an indication of future performance. Here's our past performance. It's like, all right, well. We and let, let's also on. note that if you say anything below 90%, it's clearly an, a joke. Uh, yeah, a joke uh, number. Yeah, it's a joke number, yeah. And nobody's going to listen to me. Um, yeah, so I actually answered this on my my podcast called The Money Owners Podcast. I'm just going to put a little plug in there. Um, episode 10 was a Q&A. And um, because Pierre always retweets me, because I honestly, I like poke him and I'm like, retweet my uh, my podcast or my this or that. Um, I got a bunch of Bitcoin questions. And somebody asked me how much they should be investing. Um, I don't remember the specific question, um, but it really does start with your risk tolerance. Um, and I think that that's something that the community doesn't really talk about enough. Um, and 
is extremely important. So somebody with a very low risk tolerance, even if they're obsessed with Bitcoin, loves Bitcoin as much as you two do, thinks that Bitcoin is going to be the next big thing, it's probably not in their best interest to be putting 95 or 99.9% .9 of their net worth in it because they're not going to be able to hold it even though hodling, quote unquote, is the way that people you know handle Bitcoin in your community. So. I would say starting there is a really good place. Um, there are risk tolerance questionnaires online. Vanguard has one that's like, just you can go on there, just type Vanguard risk tolerance questionnaire in and you can just get, like you can score yourself online um, and see where you stand. So I would start there. Um, and then there's also like within risk tolerance, there's ability to take risk and then there's willingness to take risk. So ability to take risk means that you actually have the means to be able to put money into Bitcoin, hold it or hodl it for a long period of time, not care about what it does. And then like theoretically be very wealthy on the other side. Right. Whereas willingness is another story, right? Willingness is actually probably what most of your, the people who listen to your podcast have, because everyone is really obsessed with Bitcoin. There's a huge willingness to invest because it seems like an extremely exciting opportunity. But I would say that ability is probably the thing that your listeners need to focus on because they need to have the means to be able to do it. So if they don't have the means to be able to put, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars into Bitcoin, then it's not going to be um, the right investment for them. Um, sorry about that. That was me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I would say. I would start with ability. So what do I mean by ability? Ability is really like how much money you have in the bank, right? How much you can actually risk, how much money you don't even need to be investing in things. So um, like when I talk to my clients about this, we're normally talking about stock type stuff instead of Bitcoin. But I think it applies like I think stocks are something that you hold for a very long period of time. Bitcoin is the same thing. It's an asset class that you want to hold for a very long period of time. So you can kind of compare them as something that you like would theoretically invest in. Um, and when you think about it, it has to be money that you don't need for a long period of time. So that means that if you only have five grand in the bank and your expenses are around five grand a month or whatever, right, that you don't have very much of an ability to invest, let's say, in Bitcoin or really in anything at that point. How many, how, how many months should you have in your emergency fund in cash? And there are Bitcoiners who will say part of your emergency fund should be in Bitcoin. Why is that not the case? Okay, so none of your emergency funds should be in Bitcoin. And that's because I would say for most of your listeners, if not all of them, none of their liabilities are probably in Bitcoin either. So a liability meaning your bills or thing, or you don't eat right by going around the corner and paying your grocer in Bitcoin. Um, maybe you do somewhere, but most people don't. So, But even if you do, it's priced in dollars. Yeah, so it's still priced it's in dollars. So the liability itself is in dollars. So um none of your emergency funds should be in bitcoin to start um uh, until, until bitcoins are the unit of account uh yes. generally speaking and yeah the most good and then it would, of course makes sense it'd be kind of yeah for sure so i would say if everything you guys are talking about is right and bitcoin becomes the global currency if, that everybody uses and right. yeah when bitcoin becomes <laughs> the unit of account that everybody uses then yes your um all of your liabilities will be denominated in bitcoin and then it would actually be very silly to hold a different right currency. Um, the other thing is that, so the amount of months though, that you need an emergency fund is pretty, um, it depends. So it depends on how stable your income is. So if you have a very stable income, you don't actually need as much of an emergency fund as let's say somebody who has a very unstable income. So I've seen emergency funds reach anywhere from three months to 15 months. Um, just given how often you're paid, who you're paid by, 
like what your what what your profession is. There's all sorts of things that go into this. Um, and if you have questions about that specifically, you should probably reach out to a financial planner. Or right. submit it to the uh, money owners. Yeah, podcast. or submit it to the money owners podcast. Be very detailed about like what your profession is, how often you're yeah. paid, all that stuff, and I'll tell you how how um, long of an emergency fund you should have. On the that ability versus like willingness uh, to to invest, I, I think something there's something interesting about Bitcoin um, that I've noticed that uh, a number of financial people uh, kind of sweep under the rug in, in terms of trying to keep people from like taking on uh, certain risks, which is that uh, Bitcoin does have the ability to go up um, a substantial amount. You know, it's it's completely reasonable to to think that it's it's possible that Bitcoin could go up, you know, 10x in the next two years and stuff like that. And there's not a lot of uh, assets that are that volatile in in what we would say, you know, a more positive way in terms of uh, if you want Bitcoin to go the, the way we want it. Um, so with that, you know, an interesting question is, uh, let's imagine that you have uh, the ability to be uh, investing, meaning you have, you know, you, you have your stable money, you're having fun with Bitcoin, um, but you invest in Bitcoin and you, you put in, you know, five, 10 percent of your net worth because it's like, yeah, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to take this this risk on. And then Bitcoin goes way up and you realize that it's, you know, now, you know, 90 percent of your net worth or something crazy like that. Um uh, a lot of them, you know, would immediately say, you know, to rebalance. Uh, but you also do have uh, that sort of built-in ability from the get-go, which is like you you have your stable life. Um, so with that in mind, you know, how much do you actually want to rebalance? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually want to start with the net worth part. So I would say anywhere between 1% and 10% of net worth is probably fine for your Bitcoin allocation, given your risk tolerance. Uh, very high risk tolerance being that you could start with something like very, very, very high risk tolerance would be 10% of net worth, right? Low risk tolerance. I think still 1% is probably fine just because I think at that point, it's really more like an insurance policy, right? If you guys are right and it becomes a global currency, right? Maybe everybody should own something. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a good place to start. As far as rebalancing is concerned, there are a lot of mixed um, opinions on this one. I actually, I tend to be in the camp of rebalancing is crappy, <laughs> Uh, for lack of a better word, I think like, so I like to have really wide tolerance bands on my rebalancing. And there's a number of reasons why there are transaction fees associated with actually invest um, with rebalancing, right? Like the cost of the trade itself um, between the transaction fee, like reaching across the market to make sure that you you actually can sell the position um, or buy something else, um, depending on what you're rebalancing into, right? So those things have costs, there's taxes that have costs as well, all of these costs drags on your portfolio. So there's something called tolerance, tolerance bands. And given like what kind of asset is, it is, then you would set a tolerance band based on that. So a very low vol, like a low vol asset, like something like bonds, which I don't want to get into how, why you guys think that that would actually be a high vol asset. Um, will be. It <laughs> will be a high vol asset. Time. But generally tolerance bands on those things are lower because they don't move that much. Right. And so as you're accumulating them for whatever reason, you, you can rebalance a little bit because it doesn't actually cost that much on the portfolio to be rebalancing. Whereas like things like stocks are probably things also like Bitcoin. When you have them in your portfolio, they're a lot more volatile. Bitcoin even way more volatile, obviously, than the stock market. Um, and there's all sorts of costs to actually rebalancing. So if you said 
to yourself, okay, well, if I put 10% of my net worth in here and now it's 90% of my net worth, right? Like at what point does it start to become irresponsible? Um, and I think that those are one of those things where it really depends on who you are, like what you're doing with that, like what kind of, where you want to, what you even want to be using that money for in the future. So for instance, like, yeah. yeah, like if you want to go buy a house and you're going to use your Bitcoin to go buy that house, like that's not very good asset liability matching because you're matching a very long-term asset, which is Bitcoin with a short-term liability. You're about to go buy a house. Um, I talk to my clients about this all the time and like, you really don't want to be using assets that move around quite a bit to go buy something in the short term. That's like a large expense because the money might not even be there when you go to do it or there's like there's tax consequences of doing it or like the market might not be as liquid as you need it to be when you need to go actually make that purchase. So that's something to consider um, when you're rebalancing. Another thing to consider is um, your actual risk tolerance. So if like you went from 10% net worth and now you're at 90% net worth and 90 feels really uncomfortable, then yeah, you absolutely need to rebalance. But if for you it was, hey, I put 10% of my net worth into this in like, you know, 2013 or whenever you did it, um, and now it's 90%, but like, I really only ever meant to put this amount in. It was meant to be an insurance policy against, you know, this becoming the global world currency or whatever you think it's going to be. And then you kind of just forget about it. You don't actually need to rebalance. So it's kind of all in like what you're using it for, how you're thinking about it, what you, you know, how you want to be positioned. Yeah. I think that's something that I've, I've said on the show before. It's like, you know, if all you wanted was a Lambo in the first place, why not go buy that Lambo? Um, it's just that I, I would hope that if people had been learning about Bitcoin, they, they started uh, thinking more about low time preference and uh, thinking a little bit past uh, simply Lambos. Yeah, for sure. But I also think like, and this is something I talk about on Money Owners quite a bit. And I also talk about with my clients quite a bit is like, what is your quality of life, right? Like, why are you doing this to begin with? So, I mean, a lot of people, they make investments so that later on in their future, they're able to afford the things that they want to afford or have a certain lifestyle or be able to provide for children or whatever it is. So like those things need to factor into your decision of like, what, like why you're buying Bitcoin, how long you're going to hold it, how you're going to think about rebalancing. And all these things are really something that you should be thinking about at the beginning of the investment. So and then sticking to it. So it's really like when when I sit down with a client and we create a plan, we put all of these things into the plan at the beginning um, because they're all important. And then as the client's life changes and at, like because we're humans, right? And we we do human things and we don't think like robots, right? Like different things come up in our lives. Like you have to start making adjustments to the plan. So I think like it's very formal to be doing this if like you, you know you're in your own house and you bought a bunch of bitcoins and then you stored them under your mattress or wherever. Um, and then you then wrote up a formal plan about how you were going to handle rebalancing. I mean, I, I think it's a good idea. I personally would do that uh, or at least have in your mind how you're going to handle these things as they come up. Because like if you know how you're going to handle it going into it, then it's a lot easier to make the decision when it actually comes up in the future. Right. Thankfully for me, uh, you know, I was planning on rebalancing into moon colonies. So I don't have to <laughs> think about this for quite a while. It's a good insurance policy. Yeah, for sure. Is that what you're planning on doing with money too? <laughs> no, the moon doesn't have enough gravity, but maybe maybe we can create a gravity well. But see, that's that's why it's strategic. <laughs> you can get from the moon, you can get off the moon easier to go uh, further explore the universe. I also think that Newt Gingrich has dibs on all of the prime real estate on the moon, so I don't think that it's an interesting opportunity in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get your hands on the sea of tranquility. <laughs> yeah, I think the USG has uh, 
has they'll has build a museum there. on that. Yeah. It's also the, the insurance policy. It's interesting too, because as the value of Bitcoin goes up, then isn't it the case that the, the, the expectation of this insurance policy paying off is also increasing. Right. Um, yes. Because it's actually like being the risk is being realized. Um, and traditionally, like with a life insurance policy, you know, you don't see the present value of that life insurance policy going up in real time uh, because you don't see it getting traded on the market. But if it were getting traded on the market, you would see that. Um, you got to buy a whole life policy so you can see that illustration every year. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in any case, the other thing I would, I would push back on, and this is, this is kind of silly because Bitcoin has only been around for 10 years, but if you look at the price cycles of Bitcoin, like it seems to come back every like two, three, four years. So if you have like that as your, um, time horizon for how long, you know, you understand that you're getting locked up into this investment for X number of years. Uh, and in between, like you might be down 80%, but at the end of three or four years, you're at least going to be break even. And is that like a cognitive bias based on like a very little amount of data? Or do you think that's a reasonable way of thinking about it? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. So um, when clients ask me about buying it, one of the first things that we talk about is that they have to be able be willing to hold the position for at least three years. Um, and three years does come up from these cycles that you're talking about. For sure. People make the same arguments with stocks where they're like, um, yeah, sure. Over the past 80 years, which is a blip in human history, uh, you know, you've got these, you got this like 7% return uh, on average or whatever. So it's kind yeah, of Yeah, are you mocking me? <laughs> no, no, I'm not mocking you. I'm, I'm making, I'm drawing a parallel between yeah, stocks and no, no, Bitcoin. No, I hear you. Um, yeah, but what I would say though, it is a little bit of a cognitive bias, right? Because like, there's no reason why Bitcoin couldn't go through a 10 year period where either it went down or did nothing. Well, that's where you've got to go from like technical analysis to fundamental analysis. Yeah. Because like the same thing for stocks, like there's a reason why we think stocks are going to continue to appreciate in value. Yeah. Um, and you could get into uh, kind of like how capitalism works and how yeah, but I would say, though, like the reason why people say 30 years is really a, a good time horizon for stocks is because like when they take in different 30 year periods of time, like you've actually made the rate of return that you were supposed to make, quote unquote, over that period. Right. That, that doesn't mean that every single year stocks went up eight or nine percent. It just means that over a 30 year period of time, you did average out eight or nine percent or whatever it is. Um, Bitcoin is going to probably like the more price data you have and the more like re like returns data that you have over time, you'll have a similar thing like that where you'll be able to evaluate like what the appropriate holding period of time is. But because the asset class is so new, it's hard to evaluate these things. But I would still say like I would compare it to stocks, right? Like if I'm willing to hold stocks for 30 years, then I should be willing to hold Bitcoin for 30 years because they're both like stocks are extremely volatile asset, but Bitcoin's is even more so. Right. And therefore, maybe the holding period is even longer than that. I don't, I don't know. But I would say, like, I don't think it's something where you're buying Bitcoin and you think, OK, like two years from now, I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be able to go buy X, Y and Z. Like that, I think, would be the exact wrong reason to get to get in. It's, a, it's a very poisonous mentality to go in with. 
Yeah, for sure. And also because you're not going to be able to hold through a hard period, right? If your reason why you went in was a sort of a get rich quick scheme, which is, I mean, I see this all the time with people who want to trade um, clients come to me and they're like, okay, well, you'll manage the majority of my money, but like, I still want my little trading account. Right. And they have their little trading account. They're able to hold whatever we claim, whatever we want them to hold in their portfolio that I put into their portfolio, but they're not able to do it in that quick trading stock account. Right. Because the reason why they went in is because they wanted to prove, let's say that they're able to do it better than I am, or there's some, a slew of other reasons why they could get rich quick in this little account. Um, I see that happen all the time, but what really does happen is that you make a bad investment decision and then you're kind of clawing your way out and trying to find reasons to, you know, be doing something else. So um, I would say that's a, always a terrible reason to invest. Um, but honestly, like, I mean, I, this is probably holds true for Bitcoin as it does hold true for all my clients is what we say is like the best time to invest is when you have money to invest. And the best time to sell is when you need to sell, right? Because you need the money for something. So that's why like this whole idea of asset liability matching is really important because you want to be like essentially like taking funds that are invested and being able to match them towards whatever it is that you want to purchase in the future. It's a very different um, motto than I have uh, because my motto is the best time to invest in Bitcoin is yesterday and the second best time is today. <laughs> well, if, if you have if you have the means to do so, right? Yeah, like, yeah of course. Um, and that's where... Like people will be like, I, I saw this guy. He was he was arguing that um, lump sum is better than dollar cost averaging. And my response to him was, okay, but let's just grant you the argument for a second. You, how do you have the lump sum? Like why, you know? It, it, and um, most people are earning money over time uh, from you know performing services or selling goods. And they don't just have lump sums laying around or they borrow it, in which case is your calculation taking into account the cost of capital and then also the risk of taking on leverage and all, all of that. Um, and then just timing of the market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I would say that's a huge thing. So what, what I see all the time is that people, they start accumulating because they, they, they didn't actually know what to do with it. So they just let it accumulate. Just I mean, there are other reasons, obviously, quit. but yeah. And yeah. then the third yeah. reason that people have money to invest is they got an inheritance or something else like that, or like a huge bonus paid through work that all of a sudden came in and threw a lump sum that they had more yeah. than they needed before. But I mean, those are like circumstantial. I mean, this is... Yeah, this you don't really choose the timing on that. This is my, actually, like my very next question was like, what is what is the best way, like once you've identified your you know, ability, ability and willingness to, to make risks in Bitcoin investments, what's the actually like, you know, best way to go about doing that. And of course, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, the, the dollar cost averaging mentality um, for a number of reasons. Um, but I'm also willing to hear, you know, contrary. Yeah, opinions. I think it depends on how you get paid. Um, for sure. Right. So if you're just a regular W2 employee and you get paid regularly and you're not spending as much as you make, then for sure, dollar cost averaging makes a ton of sense. You just, you don't automatically move a percentage of your paycheck um, either into an investment account and you invest in a combination of stocks and bonds that makes sense for your risk tolerance. Um, and then also some Bitcoin. That would be my recommendation. If, if a client came into me and said, hey, I want to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. and um, But what should I be doing? I would probably suggest that they dollar cost average across 
a bunch of different asset classes. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. throw it in there, even though I'm sure your listeners will not care. Um, this is anti-maximalism. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> at least she's not meaning like other coins or anything like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No other coins. I'm not into that. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say like if you have a really high risk tolerance, you probably should be dollar cost averaging into a combination of some Bitcoin and then a bunch of stocks, right? Like that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's something that a lot of my clients do. Um, if you don't get paid regularly, right, if you're not on a W-2 or you run your own business um, or you are on a W-2, but you get a lot of your income through commission checks from being in sales or like you get a bonus twice a year and that's really the majority of your savings. Now you're not you can't really be dollar cost averaging, right, because the monthly money that's coming in is immediately going out to actually pay bills and other things. So I see this with my clients quite a bit where. Um, they get bonuses twice a year or once a year. And that's when we do all of the planning, right? The one, the one lump sum comes in, some of it goes towards investments, some of it goes towards actually um, making sure that they can pay bills for the rest of the year, right? Because like if you get paid quite a bit of your salary um, in the form of bonus or quite a bit of your comp in the form of bonus or commissions, then you actually might even have to plan all of your expenses around that stuff too. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say just being vigilant, like when lump sum payments come in, but it's obviously much easier and you can automate everything much easily, much more easily if you're just a regular W-2 who doesn't have to worry about that stuff. Right. That being said, though, I think that there's uh, other benefits to dollar cost averaging um, in the sense of if you are dipping your toes into Bitcoin, like you you, you know you, like you, you have enough interest and ability and all of that to want to invest, but you still haven't, you're, you're not, you're not like a true believer yet. Um, yeah, yeah. It, way to dip your toes in like you know you're buying you're buying a couple dollars a day or however much weekly or whatever and then you start to see how the price is changing over some period of time and that you know uh turns on a light in your head that makes you think more about you know various economic principles and that just you know the ball gets rolling and then like you suddenly want to get involved um that's sort of a kind of actually like a good low risk way of of kind of dipping your toes in uh, before, you know, perhaps making a bigger lump sum uh, payment later when it's like, okay, I, I at least want to have this many Bitcoins. I, I, only, yeah. I, was, I was stacking sats, but now I'm sold and I want to make sure I have a full Bitcoin. I'm going to go buy that, buy that now. So that's a good way to dip your toes in. Um, the other, the other thing is, just the the psychological pressure that comes like you were saying you know uh, if you're buying um with the the idea that you're going to get rich in two years uh you're likely going to get burned because you know there's there, there could be a mania and that could be followed by a big um dip and you are not going to have the mental fortitude um to be able to uh you know or power like you're going to be trying to be clever right Where like oh i can sell now and it's going to go down 50%, yes. and I can get twice as many Bitcoin, and then it's going to go back up because that's the chart analysis I did. Like I, I knew thing. too many people in Silicon Valley that that talk like that, and I would continually just be be saying, um, no, just, just hold. And I remember doing some math at one point and realized, like, had you just held a very small amount through the period that this was going on, you would have done way better than whatever numbers uh, they were saying they got because of like M- M- Fibonacci s- series or something like that. Um, so yeah, they're, they're- stocks too for sure. I see this all the time with people. I mean, the other thing being like taxes, right? Like everyone makes a good return in their trading portfolio or whatever until they take into account taxes. I think there was a study done on this where all these hedge funds they put all the returns. They actually did an adjusted uh, tax adjusted return if you were in the highest tax profile, which mm-hmm. you would be if you were an accredited investor. 
um, going into these and uh, just a muni bond portfolio beat them all on a tax adjusted basis. So, yeah, well, so, so with all of that in mind, if you instead had been just like, you know, quietly stacking sets the whole time. And, and if you're doing that, you're thinking just in terms of like $5 a day, or you know, I'm just naming a number. I, I don't know what, what individuals would want, but you know, something like that is it's a reasonable, um, you know, it's 150 a month or whatever. For a lot of people, that's a reasonable amount. Um, and if you're doing that and you're just quietly stacking those sets, um, you 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 got to you know go through any volatility that happened without even really noticing it, um, and then when all of this happens, I, I I I'm speculating that someone would have much better mental fortitude um, facing the sort of inevitable uh, you know volatility, like yeah, big volatility. I think so. I mean, you're probably right. I see it. So I see a lot more dollar cost averaging, obviously, like in traditional assets. Um, and it, what tends to happen is that your returns don't look anything like the benchmark. So what do I mean by that? It's like, if let's say you bought, um, you know, a bunch of us large cap stocks, um, your benchmark would be the S and P 500, which is the 500 largest stocks, um, in the U S and if your dollar cost averaging, your returns over the course of the year are not going to look anything like whatever the S and P 500 did over the course of the year, because you didn't just put money in on January 1st and then see what happened on December 31st. Um, and depending on the person, some people get upset by that and other people, they don't care because they've accumulated, you know, whatever they accumulated over the course of the 12 months that they were saving and they're happy because they at least saved the money and it got invested in everything else. So I think it kind of depends on what kind of person you are. I mean, the other thing being that like, there's no real, like, I guess Bitcoin itself is the benchmark, right? But if you're dollar cost averaging, you wouldn't just match from January 1st to December 31st. But I don't know how much of that is like something that people even really care about in mm-hmm. in this world. Or, um, But I would say that like the more that Bitcoin is around, the more that these like regular financial metrics will probably come up and people might start caring about these things. But in the meantime, I would say like, I've never met anyone who's been upset about saving on a regular basis um, over the course of a year. Um, regardless of what they're invested in, usually people are pretty happy at the end of the year. An interesting argument for dollar cost averaging is that it stops you from getting excited when the price is going parabolic. Up. It does, yeah, that's true. And well, you you might be getting excited, but it stops you from making that financial decision of like going all in at the top. Hmm. And yeah. like Bitcoin spends very little time. If you look, you can just drop like a couple of months, you know, and there you go. You just remove the entire parabola and now you have like a steady increase in value. Um, So if you're dollar cost averaging, then, yeah, you do pick up some expensive coins at the top, but very little compared to if you just panic bought your entire portfolio. Yeah, I actually I always think about this with my clients. I'm like, I wish that like while my clients were accumulating that the S&P just slowly like went down. And then all of a sudden when they retired, it just shot up, you know, <laughs> like it did like all 30 years of return exactly when they retired. Like that would be ideal. But obviously, like that's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, markets tend to go up over time. Right. So I was I would expect no less from Bitcoin if it actually does have the value that everyone here perceives it's going to have. So, well, it, it, the other thing is that like the the adoption rate is different. So like the, the stock market, you could say like it's reached full adoption. It's not like there's this hidden pocket of 
investors that are suddenly finding out about the stock market. Oh, man. Have <laughs> you heard of the stock market thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, my boy just told me about though, a new right? investment opportunity. It's called the S and P. Let's get a counter argument. Let's get the a counter, counter argument. Is this right? There's population growth. So there's more yeah. people in the next generation who have capital to invest, right? Even though they've necessarily heard about it, right? It doesn't mean that the money went to work there because they didn't have the money to begin. Maybe they were a minor and now all of a sudden they're coming into the workforce. I mean, there have been studies though now in the US that I think we're starting to shrink. I think it's 1.8 children now. So Depends who you count. Yeah, I, I don't think millennials care as much about the stock market. Yeah, that's there that. is that going that's, on that's, too. That's boomer financials. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say, I mean, majority of my clients are Gen X or millennials, and they're all invested in the stock market. So I, so I don't know how much of that is 30, really true. 37-year-old boomers is what you're saying. Yeah, I think, honestly, it's more like they're less interested in the stuff that their parents are interested in. So I'll give you an example. So like a 67-year-old client of mine will call in and be like, what's the market doing today? Whereas like a 37-year-old client of mine will call in and say, how much money do I need to save for my kid's college? Yeah. Yeah, and then literally no mention of the market, even though they're invested in it. Maybe it right. comes up once it, a year. We do live in an interesting time where there's there's uh, so many opportunities to to invest in all kinds of cool like index funds or whatever, where someone's managing stuff and you can just throw money in and it kind of you know does it itself, so to speak. Um, and you don't really have to uh, you know pay attention as much. And uh, if I understand correctly, for those older people, you had to actually. That, that wasn't something that was as accessible. No, definitely not. I actually, I don't even know off the top of my head when the first index fund was created, but I think it was like 80s. 60s or 70s, yeah. But, but even they, like but the were, market share was... Yeah, um, market share is a little different. Also, there were mutual fund companies, though, and other things that, that held... Like, what mutual funds looked like at the beginning were actually kind of closer to, not index funds, but like, they did hold a wide variety of companies. They were diversified. They actually were more in line with what people consider to be like good investments today. And then we went through this, that's like how it started. Yeah, they were like, we went through this bad period of like serious trading and other stuff that happened. But like when they first began, they actually were like closet indexes. Yeah. Or honestly, like more like fiduciaries as people are like what people are coming around to now is like, you want somebody who's putting your interest first. who are not just like, you know, trying to sell you a bunch of crap so that and they then get rich and you don't. The conversation became like, which manager are you using, you know, at the barbecue? It's like, yeah, well, that's, but I, I, I actually, I like the Michael, like the days when one had to artisanally put together their, their stock portfolio and pick, you know, one company at a time while they're kind of like well, looking at, yeah. Well, my cynical position is that, uh, you know, because uh, since 1971, we have not been, you know, the gold window is closed and, you know, the the economy has to deal with the inflationary money supply somehow that, of course, technology is going to uh, boom around uh, being able to um, invest in things that, that beat inflation. I don't yeah, know if that's so, true, but that's my sort of cynical guess. I, I can see, like, some truth in it in that, like the technology has gotten really good for making like the stock market very liquid for investors. So it's very easy for investors to go from being invested in the stock market to having cash in their bank account. And, but I, I don't know, I don't know that that's attributable to, to the inflation problem. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think though, that like, because of inflation, people are faster to go out and 
want to be fully invested rather than sitting on more cash. Uh, right, right. Well, part of that would be if that's the case, then you know more people are going to be there to supply things for you to be able to invest in and and easily uh, because there is that demand for it. The market does. We've absolutely kind of seen that. I mean, you could literally invest in anything right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, there's an ETF for everything. I've seen so many private products come out for real estate opportunities and other things where they're advertised as like. Oh, this is what rich people used to be able to invest in. Now we brought it to the public. Um, now I'm getting really cynical because it's like <laughs> I, I've been, I've been, you know, so down about ICOs for how many years now? And then you just what you're saying makes me think is like, oh, the whole world is just ICOs. Just there is a lot of that going on for sure. <laughs> I just saw one too where a company came out with that you could buy a share of a piece of artwork, which to me seems like such a scam. Like I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, but I feel like a. Yeah, I, I just hope I get the smile of the Mona Lisa. I hope that's my share. It's <laughs> yeah. the most important part. Can you choose which part of yeah, the artwork? Sure. Yeah. Although if you, you don't, don't have, have the eyes following you, is it still <laughs> actually it's valuable? Um, the, I, I do want to get to well, on the dollar cost averaging. I, I have one last you know potential point. I want to hear your thoughts on it, which is that I've talked to a lot of people who um, they want to invest in Bitcoin. They can invest in Bitcoin. Um, and yet they sort of have almost a fatalistic position of like, oh, I'm never going to get X number of Bitcoins anyway. And they just kind of like every day they're letting their opportunity to invest in Bitcoin slip by. And dollar cost averaging is this easy way to be like, OK, we'll just go get Cash App and just every day you know, throw a couple bucks in or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, also, I'd say like that's a thought that these people need to be working on. I mean... I know I say this a lot on my podcast and Pierre's probably sick of me saying that in general, but like the number of Bitcoins you own is kind of irrelevant, right? Like the number of shares you, like it used to be a thing that you had to buy like shares of stock in lots of hundreds. Um, and I remember my parents um, when they like first looked at my stock portfolio when I like was fresh out of college and I thought I was like the shit and I like, you know, put my little portfolio together and I showed it to them and they were like, you bought... 13 shares of something like what is wrong with you you're supposed to buy them in hundreds and like that's just something that's like it's just in your head there's no reason why you can't buy one share of something there's no reason why you can't buy one satoshi of bitcoin right like there's just no reason why like it's it's right now everything you know there's a, there, there's been a meme in bitcoin for a long time that's just the phrase you can buy a fraction of a bitcoin yeah and it's rightfully so. I mean, honestly, I feel like that's just something like you first, if for whatever reason you have in your head that you're supposed to own 40 Bitcoin, like, I mean, either make more money so you can own 40 Bitcoin or like work on why you have that thought to begin with. Um, yeah. And I would say dollar cost averaging is a good way to go because if you don't have a lump sum to invest, then at least you're accumulating over time. Um, and maybe you'll eventually get to that number if that number is really important to you. Like mm -hmm. say to yourself, okay, if I want to get to 40 Bitcoin, I have 10 years to do it. Just do the math. How much you have, how many Bitcoin do you have to buy? Um, to dollar cost average into it and make sure it makes sense, obviously, with the rest of your portfolio before you start doing this, that like, you know, you're not going to run out of cash flows. So you can't like go buy your kid, you know, food because you decided that you needed to have X dollar or X number of Bitcoins. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say like there are way like just, you know, use some common sense when you're thinking about these things for sure. But dollar cost averaging is a really good way to go just across asset classes in general. I mean, um, honestly, because we get paid over time. So even if let's say you only get paid once per year, you can dollar cost average once a year. 
right? There's no, there's nothing that says that that's not dollar cost averaging just because you're not doing it on a daily or a weekly or monthly basis. Uh-huh. Um, as long as you're doing it regularly right now, all of a sudden you're dollar cost averaging. I think uh, with all of this in mind, this is why uh, the stacking sats hashtag um, on Twitter, why it's been such a powerful meme. And I think it's a, it's a very positive meme. Um, and I'm glad that uh, Matt Odell and Marty uh, Bent really uh, made it happen. Yeah, we, we were talking about the emergency fund earlier and, and then kind of the investment horizon you would want to have for Bitcoin. And to me, like th- this highlights the difference in, in this meme that I've been trying to create of a value currency, which is like the US dollar, where it's basically at full value and slowly losing value um, in the case of the US dollar. But there's not like there's not going to be a, a wave of new adopters of the US dollar that's going to pump the value of the US dollar going up. So like uh, that you can hold for your emergency fund. And then Bitcoin is more like a growth currency in that you anticipate it in the future being so liquid that it could be your emergency fund. Uh, but in the meantime, it's not. And then like I see the Bitcoin like evolving on that spectrum towards being a value currency, it actually is going to change who is holding Bitcoin um, from people who were previously holding it as a growth currency to then people who are holding it like in their emergency fund in 30 years. Um, But that's kind of like, I I, I got into an argument with someone on Twitter. I know it's crazy news uh, because he was very upset that I was using these words value and growth and not referring to equities. Uh, and I was referring <laughs> to currencies. Well, actually that's totally wrong. I mean, that people talk about that with currencies today that are not Bitcoin, obviously. I mean, yeah. I'm just talking about like emerging currencies versus um, developed market currencies. And yeah. you know, those terms alone are, they imply growth versus value. Well, I mean, it would be a real shame if we tried to use the English language to, um, describe you know new things that we see in the world <laughs> well it's a, it's a form it, it can be a form of charlatanism right where you borrow language from a respectable field in order to legitimize your own so i can I, I could see where he was coming from and we see the same thing with like the phrase icf like yeah, weren't we just talking about this yesterday yeah yeah so <laughs> i i sympathize with it um, but I do think there's actual economic substance to my argument uh, for why. Right, right. I think I think the problem there is exactly like that. Um, it's like you're actually making a cogent point, and he's getting upset with the specific symbols, you know, English symbols being used to, you know, point at the concepts rather than the concept concepts themselves. No. Okay, so um, I guess another question that is interesting from a personal finance perspective which I find very frustrating. Um, so there's different views on whether you should spend your Bitcoin with like online merchants and retailers and whatnot, and then, and then replace them, uh, you know, so that spend you're and replace. spend and replace. Okay. Or like, it's like chewing and then spitting out the food. Yeah. Okay. It's like, <laughs> it's like tasting the wine and spitting it out. Um, or, or just sitting on the Bitcoin, um, or people saying like, you really shouldn't be saving Bitcoin. Like it should be circulating and you should be just spending and earning, not even spend and replace, just like 
you've got to create your own circular economy somehow. So spend and replace, I honestly think is the dumbest thing you could do, right? Because there are tax consequences to you spending and replacing because yeah. right now everything is denominated in dollars or wherever, whatever country you're in. But um, let's say there was a tax exemption to spend and replace. Yeah. Imagine we lived in a civilized society. Oh, okay. Where we don't have taxes. I mean, honestly, now it just seems like you're creating work for yourself. You go spend these Bitcoins, then you have to go buy them back. Like that just seems really annoying. Well, what if it could be automated? <laughs> I, yeah, but like, why, That's something yeah. why I are think... you doing this to yourself? Well, I, so I could uh, let's imagine that on, on Cash App, um, there was a button that when you when you it can it can spend bitcoins and then automatically trigger the new buy. So it's just all in that same button. It does it in the same the same time when the the little thing is swirling to say that the transaction is going through. It's making that buy. Yeah. So in that case, it'd be automated away. You wouldn't even be noticing. And then okay, here's here's the part that I find stupid though, Michael, is that on the merchant side they're automatically selling the Bitcoin. And so on your side, you're automatically buying. And so <laughs> those two net out. And the end result is that you might as well have just been sitting on the Bitcoin uh, and well, then handed them US dollars. Yeah, th this is why, you know, the if you're going to, I, I think if you're going to patronize a merchant with Bitcoins, uh, it should probably be a merchant that's actually interested in the Bitcoin economy. Yeah, is, that's is, what I was thinking was like, if you're going to a merchant who is accepting Bitcoins, like, or let's say you yourself is a bit, or you're a business owner and you want to start accepting Bitcoins, like maybe the thing that you have in the back of your mind is, okay, I wanted to accumulate Bitcoins anyways. So when somebody comes into my store and actually buy or buys my services or whatever it is that you're selling with Bitcoin, that that money I'm actually going to put away. Like that's money where it's owners pay and I'm going to save and I'm not going to spend it and I'll mark down my cost basis and everything else. Um, and there probably should be an automated way to do that portion of it. Um, that's one way to look at it if you're actually the vendor. If you're the spender, I mean, I would say like given where we are in the Bitcoin economy, there's kind of no reason why you would be not just spending your dollars other than like the novelty of it all. Yeah, well, people get, really answer your question people get very upset at uh, the... the uh, praise of credit cards that a lot of bitcoiners have hmm. uh very very upset um so are credit cards good or bad do i think credit cards are good yeah or bad? i think credit cards are good when you pay them off at the end of every month i think they're bad when you think that you can just start floating all sorts of stuff on them and now you're paying 22 to 30 percent so you shouldn't buy bitcoin with your credit card absolutely not <laughs> that is the worst thing you can do. Also, no home equity lines. None of this. I've like heard all this stuff where you're gonna you're gonna borrow against your stock portfolio to buy bitcoins. You're gonna borrow against your bond portfolio. To buy, like, why are you doing this? I the, think you need to really assess some of these card, things. The first credit card I got, I literally got uh, actually because Pierre told me about it. Uh, there was a credit I card. I told you about credit cards. You didn't know about credit cards. I had never heard of credit cards. No. Oh my God. Um, Chase Freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, I, well, like credit cards were not on my mind. It was like, I, I don't like, it, it doesn't cross my mind to have a, a credit card. Uh, but then, yeah, I, he, you know, Pierre told me about uh, Chase Freedom where it's like, oh, you get 1% back on every single payment. And if you pay every single time you spend, and if you pay back at the end of the month, there's no charges. Yeah, and so, so that's free bitcoins. I mean, the um, the merchant pays three percent, so you can get one percent back, right? Like that's what's going on there. 
But, um, but if you were before, if you were in the debit card economy, yeah, then, then you didn't even get the one percent. You didn't back. even get the one percent back, and then they still paid a transaction yeah. fee for sure. I mean, I would say the thing and about that, that, cost still, is, that 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 cost that the the merchant is pushing on to the consumer is still being pushed on to you. Yeah, 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 it's still being pushed on to you for sure. I mean, the other thing I would say though is like the thing that's good about a credit card, right? Is like you start to build a credit history. There's a like. Maybe in the new Bitcoin world where none of this is a thing, yeah, it won't be a thing. You're but right saying now, that's bad for that's probably bad for privacy. Yeah, in the no, but in the fiat world, right? It's important to have a credit history because if you want to go buy a car, let's say, and get a loan, or you want to go buy a house and get a loan, you need to have some sort of history yeah, behind you. To most actually Bitcoiners, be able to get a loan. most Bitcoiners don't have a social security number. Yeah, so. oh, right, right, yeah. Um, but I mean, Morgan, I would say there are some privacy also, issues. Uh, support the uh, the Chinese state and what they're doing with uh, social credit. Oh, can you tell me about what's going on with social credit? Oh, uh, they they just put they they put a sort of credit score on all aspects of life. Oh, interesting. I'm <laughs> so sure it's, it's like, messed up. I'm sure. It's, <laughs> I just I, I'm playing with it. It's just sort scores? of it's like reductio ad absurdum. It's like oh well, in the fiat economy, you need to make sure you have a good line of credit. It's like yeah, you need to make I sure know. that you're a good happy citizen and all that. Like, yeah, well, I actually one of my clients ran into an issue right because one of the things that banks do when they calculate whether or not they'll give you a mortgage is what your income is, right? And they don't like it when. Um, Right now, the number for a regular loan is 36% of your income. So if 36% of your income is going towards any kind of debt payment, they don't want to give you another loan, let's say. But my clients, they are retired and they have a bunch of assets and they just wanted to go buy something. And they figured because the interest rates are so low, that they take a mortgage out and whatever and just call it a day. I've had had times where I I got uh, rejected for a loan because on paper it looked very strange. Um, You know... you know, not uh, being being on my mom's couch after just <laughs> moving back to Texas, uh, and uh, being between jobs and no income. So there's like all these like weird things on paper, not realizing it's like, oh, we were also like a computer programmer and like all this. Yeah, other stuff. yeah. They yeah. don't take that into account, right? Because like you can be so, a computer the programmer system, that never gets a job. The, the Chinese system would have taken that into <laughs> account. So yeah. Wow, but maybe their system is just better than ours. <laughs> but Michael, it also yeah. would have taken into account how many people don't like you. <laughs> but that's such a low number. <laughs> True. It's. It, I mean, it's far outweighed by how many they would people have, like. They you. would have like given me the loan. I'm just loan saying, both like, numbers are very high. They would have given me the loan. I mean, yeah, don't don't even worry about it. This one's on us. Imagine how many vegans would have left a negative review on your social oh, profile. Oh yeah, wasn't there like what was it? Is it Star Trek or one of these things where they had it was black like, mirror? The, there was the was black it? mirror was episode where yeah. people had a vote on everything that you did, and then you started to get a bad. You got executed. Yeah, you got like yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's it's bound to it's bound to happen now. Like one of the arguments for Bitcoin is that if we have a Bitcoin economy, we can help avoid this crazy dystopia that China's going in the direction of. So it's like either choose all of like even more corporate control of your life uh, with your credit card, your credit score and your social score and all this, or more privacy uh, uh, and more cash usage uh, on the Bitcoin side. But I, yeah. I also think, I mean, one, one aspect of that is even, even that is somewhat of a false dichotomy uh, because as I see it, the the positive vision of Bitcoin and the hope is not, you know, oh, pure cash, uh, but also that these these uh, credit networks are more localized. So it's like for in, in this case, it's like, you know, I'm talking to Chase Bank or whatever. It's like 
when I, I physically went into the bank because, you know, me being stupid, I think that's what you do. Uh, but it's, you know, the current year at the bank, they put me on the phone with some person, <laughs> you know, God knows where, um, that person knows nothing about my life, you know, as opposed to hopefully in a Bitcoin world when like, if, if you, you know, suddenly everyone's in a cash economy and you have to like kind of rebuild these, these networks of credit or, you know, restructure the ones from the past, you're going to start looking more at the people, you know, the best um, and go from there um, and have have these more localized networks. And actually, I mean, G Pierre, do you remember uh, Mercer Popescu's old uh, GPG contracts? Oh, yeah. Article. So like, you know, we could have stuff like that, have more, you know, gentlemen's agreement um, kind of yeah. networks. Yeah, would be yeah, awesome. In lieu of that, though, right, in our current economy, the way it stands, right, like the way around this is not doing things that are outside of your means. Mm -hmm. I think that people forget this sometimes is like, oh, well, like people, when they go to buy a house, if they go to buy a car, they pretty much like max out what they're able to do. And they go to the bank in the hopes that they're going to get a mortgage, right? And everything's on the line where as if you're being much more conservative and you're going like being more conservative is not only in your best interest because you'll get more approved more quickly for whatever it is that you want to get approved for, but also because you'll be living within your means, right? And you'll, and you'll be able money. to tax that. You'll be able to, yeah, you'll be able to dollar cost average more easily that in Bitcoin over a long period of time, right? It goes so, completely against human nature because <laughs> Americans like the <laughs> Americans want to have like, they want to get paid the most. They then want to have the nicest car they can afford. But then it's like, okay, well, the bank says I can afford this car. Yeah. Then, but like, oh, the I bank says I can afford this house. We need to be asking ourselves why, right? Yeah. For sometimes, like, sometimes these things are just in our head as to why we need to have, like, like, I think, like, we, I mean, we own a, we own a Honda, um, what do we CRV. Own? CRV, sorry. We own a Honda CRV, right? Like, my mom has the Lexus version of it. I don't even know what the, whatever the car mm -hmm. number is, but. Um, like I don't find her car to be that much better than ours, but it's like double the price of ours. Right. Like there's no reason why you need to like at this point in car with car technology, I don't think you need to go so far up unless you're just such a car person. I hope right? your like, mom doesn't listen to this. <laughs> cars get, you're like, gonna, why are you telling everyone what kind of car I drive? This is terrible offset. But, I mean, I talk about this with some of my clients, right? Because like I have clients where cars are actually a hobby. Pro right? credit they want to put aside money for yeah. People need to know what kind of car you drive so they can know how much credit to give you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like they can know how expensive you are. So like one of the jokes that Pierre and I have is like when we see a guy actually driving a Lamborghini or a car like that, I'm always like, what a poor person because he spent all his money on his car. <laughs> yeah, Craig Wright's, uh, they found out that Craig Wright was leasing his Lambo. Oh. Do you remember this, Michael? Yeah, so he, oh that's actually God. how you know he's rich. Cause, yeah, uh, but I, I remember, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if my memory is failing me or not, but I have this vague recollection of then him going out and buying it in order <laughs> to cover his ass and to like be like, no, actually, I am rich. I do, uh, fine, I'll buy the Lambo. I'll buy it. Can somebody fact check this? Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll take a look at the historical records. Yeah. But I have this like maybe it was someone else doing that, but I found that to be pretty funny as well. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so uh, I think that like one of the one of the questions we would have as an audience member would be like, all right, I want to own more Bitcoin. Uh, there's a few different ways I could do that. Uh, one would be to like start an ICO scam and to get Bitcoin that way. 
But if you know you're a little more honest, it's like, all right, I just need to be saving more so that I can be dollar cost averaging more. How? What are like some of the low hanging fruits for the the typical person to to be saving more? I got huge flack on this from <laughs> on Twitter, but honestly. The thing that moves the needle the most are your large fixed expenses. That's your car, your house, your boat if you bought one, right? Any of these large fixed expenses that have large monthly payments, if you are already really stretching. So the number I threw out there is that, you know, in order to to like retire at a reasonable age, which is like 65, you really need to be saving, saving at least 10% of your income. In order to do that, though, right, like the math starts to not work if you're spending, you know, 36 plus percent on rent and other things. So... Um, people didn't like it when I said only spend 20% of your income on housing. I mean, it's it's a choice that we make, right, to live in some of these areas that have high cost of living. But the best way to move the needle and to be able to save more is to start cutting in these areas. Um, if you live in an area, though, with really high cost of living, if you live in New York, you live in San Francisco, you live in these places where, like, you get basically a cardboard box under the bridge for what most people can get a nice house for in the middle of the country, and there's no way that you can move, now you need to start actually evaluating the other expenses. So that's when, like, the things like don't buy a latte every single day start to come into play, right, or, like, don't eat out, or... Uh, don't waste food, all these other things that like we think are just whatever, it's $5 here, $10 there, $20 here, they all start to add up. Um, if you can't change the, you know, the, the large fixed expenses, you really need to start evaluating this stuff on the other side. And if you want to have it always, then you're not going to save anything. And you just have to acknowledge that that's what you're doing, that you're making that choice. The flip side to that is if the uh, thing that you can't stop buying uh, has a cash app boost, <laughs> Use that. Michael, they don't sponsor this podcast, you know. You don't need to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention Lolly, but maybe they don't sponsor, right? So I should they don't sponsor time. either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which one has the bigger chance of sponsoring? I'll, I'll chill that one. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, but I mean, yeah, there's there do exist things like that that you could possibly do. Yeah, to, you uh, can, right? But you're still spending get, money, get right? Pennies. So like, we yeah. use a Lolly for whatever, and yeah, like we got five dollars of Bitcoin, but like, I mean. We have to spend in order to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know if that's the best way to be saving. I, I don't really agree with that. You gotta spend money well, to make money. But what what Wally does do and is it, it makes you go look around on comparison shop on different Yeah, websites, definitely. Like we've been which using might be a good a way to save money versus mm. Amazon, yeah. which I've noticed. Mm. Like, uh, and and that that's useful at least if there's something that you have to buy. Yeah, and I would say the other thing is like I find that and this is true of everybody. We spend money on what we spend our time on. We like consistently across the board, people spend money on what they spend their time on. Figure out what you're spending your time on. Like, is it really important to you? Start evaluating whether or not you need to be spending all the money on whatever it is that you're spending. Because for instance, like I have clients who they have workout, like working out is their hobby and they spend a lot of time on like personal physical fitness and all that other stuff, right? But like, do they need to buy all of the stuff that are is associated with that stuff? You know, like, like how much of that, at some point just starts expanding because that's what we're doing with our time. Or like on the other side, I see this is like where people's kids become their hobby and all they do is do stuff for their kids. And then like their kids have to have every single thing. They have to have the new violin. They have to have lessons yeah. for that violin. They have to have, you know, everything else. So, I mean, man, maybe these are New York problems that I see quite a bit with my clients, but um, everyone has them, right? Because we all spend our time doing something that inevitably costs money. Um, I would say that that doesn't mean slash that budget entirely and don't enjoy your life, but it does mean like maybe start evaluating whether or not you need all of those things in that category. Lower your time preference. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also, like, I mean, we tend to spend, like, one of the things, um, there's this thing called happy money. And one of the things that people, like, you actually get serotonin in your brain. And it's like a drug of dopamine gets released when you combine spending money on somebody else. So, like, gift giving, like, really, there is something that happens, like, in your brain um, that really makes us feel good inside. So what happens, especially when people have kids, for instance, and it actually becomes really hard for people to lower their time preferences for their kids because it's essentially like drugs being released in your brain every time you do something for them um, or for just for people that you love in general. So I would say like, I mean, the other thing I see on the other side is like the kids who have inherited stuff or the kids who like they don't feel like they've deserved all the things that let's say their yeah. parents gave to them because, you know, anybody in the world could or, or like people are more needy than them, right? So, I mean, there there are places that you could take this, but I think that sometimes we have to take a step back as like the, per, let's say like we're the gift givers here and that's the reason why we don't have enough money, let's say the dollar cost average into Bitcoin or whatever else it is that you want to be doing. Like do your do your kids or your family members, do they actually need all these things that you're bestowing upon them? Or are you just doing it because like it makes you feel good inside? Right. Um, there's a huge distinction between those two for sure. I've heard advice of... Uh... Put, invest in your first child as if it's your fourth because <laughs> at that point you like don't you don't care as much about not you you care about the kid but you don't like you don't get suckered into like the the freaking out over you know everything i think part, part of the flaw in that advice michael is that by the time you have the fourth you have a bunch of hand-me-down stuff so that you don't have to spend any money yeah on the fourth. that's true um i like the memes though the yeah. first baby third baby you should put one of those yeah ones. but I, I mean maybe with that <laughs> you, you would seek out more uh hand-me-downs for that first kid true yeah true. yeah i actually, actually wonder, done a little i mean what if I, i've yeah. heard of stuff like on, on craigslist you know or something like you know people uh selling just big boxes of toys just a bunch of toy like here's a random box of toys and you go yeah. pick it up for 20 bucks and now the kid has tons of toys yeah we picked up a really nice jogging stroller on the cheap off of craigslist yep been using it on the beach yeah it's so. like totally wrecked too now it has like rust already <laughs> that's okay we've got it for very little yeah. but um and then and then you can go totally crazy on a jogging stroller and pay like thousands of dollars yeah 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 like and actually so i see the other side of this is where people they spend a lot of money on their first child and then they feel like I did all this for my first kid. I have to do it for my second kid. And then Some they go and do it all again. Yeah. So don't and get And then you can't afford to have the fourth. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, noted Bitcoin <laughs> podcast is now a family planning podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> That's what happens when you invite a financial planner. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, do you have any? Yeah. I, I do have uh, more questions. I think that was okay, your question. Go. Um, well, so I, uh, I, I was uh, Ramit Sethi. Um, yeah, wrote, uh, I will teach you to be rich was on uh, the yeah, I've read it. It is good. Um, has a lot of good stuff in it. He was on uh, Tim Ferriss this past week. Um, a second edition of his book came out. So I went to go check out his second edition. It's been 10 years now. So of course, uh, when it came out, uh, Bitcoin wasn't really a thing. Um, but now it is. So there was a whole section on crypto. And Whoa. it was it was a, well, I mean, a whole section it was a couple pages. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay. but that's a, it's a section, you know? Yeah, that's good. Uh, but it was extremely infuriating because he was, he was kind of just, uh, he was kind of shitting on it. So he, first he was saying like, you know, he was kind of making fun of hodlers and he's like, this is how, you know, it's not a real investment. Cause if you ask any of them like, okay, uh, how, how much of your net worth is in Bitcoin? What's in, 
what are other things that you invest in? Uh, a lot of them only like have invested in Bitcoin. And that's how you know it. That's not an investment. It's a speculation, hmm. whatever. And then he goes on to um, just make it out to be like, oh, well, you know, you can, you know, you can throw I, well, some hold on. money Did he at have it. data on, on that? Like, did he go out and survey? Because that no, sounds very not. anecdotal. No, of course. This is it's purely anecdotal. Um, and then, and then, you know, he's saying like, if you have the means, you know, yeah. And you, you can afford to have some play investments, then go for it. And the, the final major piece of advice of like, it, it actually mirrors a lot what we've been talking here, right? It's, you know, don't, don't be investing money you don't actually have, um, because that's just putting you in a, in a extremely risky position. Um, but on the other hand, as a financial planner, I mean, I, I what I didn't like about this is it seems irresponsible to not be taking um, Bitcoin. I mean, of course, I'm biased, but taking Bitcoin as a serious investment um, and really thinking through why it is that people uh, beyond just, you know, wanting to make money in a mania would want to be investing in it. Um, and and you know, going, giving, giving the advice you're giving, but from this honest position of like, okay, you're interested in it. How can we go about doing it? As opposed to like throwing it on the bus, like given what Bitcoin is capable of, to me, it seems really irresponsible to at least not be talking about, this is why people think that Bitcoin is important. Um, do you agree when it comes to various investments like that? Yeah, for sure. So I think I'm sure there's a reason why he did that. And it probably has compliance-related things. No, because he's, he's been he's been a Bitcoin skeptic for a very long oh, time. Oh, has I've he? Seen him on, okay. on Twitter. This actually this sounds like he's become more friendly towards it because he has oh, he gets so much backlash every time he says something anti-Bitcoin on Twitter. Oh, interesting. Okay, so what I would say is this, right? Like from my perspective, I run a re registered investment advisor. It's very difficult for me to let's say solicit Bitcoin. So what I mean by that is go into a client a client's home or have a client come to my office where they weren't talking about it to begin with. And I say, Hey, it's a really good idea for you to hold this in your portfolio for X, Y, and Z reasons, even though it's a, you know, untested asset class, that's, you know, not something that people typically invest in. Right. That's really difficult for me to do because mm -hmm. of how I'm registered all the compliance things around it. So if I were Rami Stehi and I were writing a book, right, like I'd probably have some compliance issues at, like outright recommending it. That said, like, when a client comes to me and they say, hey, I'm interested in this for X, Y, and Z reasons, what's appropriate? Now, like, we can have a conversation about it. So I preface that with, like, I think, and maybe I'm biased too, right? Because I live with Pierre Rochard and, like, we've been together over six years now, right? And I've been hearing about this literally since we've been together. like Since maybe, our first yeah, date. Since our first date, I've been hearing about Bitcoin. So, like, maybe I'm, I'm probably more biased than the average financial planner about this, more so like I'm more willing to listen to what clients have to say about this particular asset class. That said though, there, there are probably some other advisors out there that are more willing to listen to their clients about other um, coins, right. That are out there. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, as soon as a client says to me, any other coin, I'm like, ah, that's like a scam, you know, you can't mess with that. <laughs> so, and then I usually, I mean, I have reasons, right. Because like I listen to this all day. So I, I, like, I don't feel like I can't back up what I say. Um, but it, I mean, there is some irresponsibility around it, right? Like I think even from a compliance perspective and I, I hope like, you know, nobody who is going to regulate me is listening to this, but like there's a compliance problem with the fact that I can't solicit this. 
Um, and the reason why is because like it, it is actually something that's becoming part of um, our everyday lives, right? Like it's something that's talked about on on every major network now. I think like yeah. my parents were telling me that they hear about the price of Bitcoin on like Fox Business News all the time when they listen to it. Right. Um, even even and, my grandma will tell me. That yeah. It's all something uh, about Bitcoin. Yeah. Michael, so, you'll, like, you'll like this. Uh, I, I was over at my in-laws house and they were like, Oh, um, do you know this guy on uh, Fox News? Uh, his name I, I forget his name now, and he probably listens to the podcast. That's embarrassing. He he was he was very positive about Bitcoin, and I was like, oh, is he on Twitter? And I, I find him. He follows me, but like I don't follow him, and you know he's got like five hundred thousand followers or something. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Uh, yeah, I'll follow him back. Maybe, maybe I can grab lunch with him. Who who was it? I'll, I'll look him up. Yeah, I'll yeah. send him your way. Peter he's, or something? Peter, yeah. He's going to be offended that I don't remember his name. But uh, Peter, if you're listening, uh, let's grab lunch. Yeah. Peter's actually going to change his name to Peter. Anyways. But it, it is like, it is it is almost mainstream in the sense yeah. of it's in the it's in the mainstream media. Yeah, and it's, it's got wide, there's like a wide number of people who own. And you've had people who you know, you didn't tell them about Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but they tell you like, but they oh, tell, yeah, they have I, told actually, me. And I, I own say, XRP. I own yeah, I have had, so I would say like of my client base, at least, it's probably at least 30% of them now have come have come and asked me about it. Um, and probably about 25% of them actually own, um, own either Bitcoin or um, I think one of my clients has like a small crypto portfolio that's like 90% Bitcoin. But um, but yeah, like people are interested in it and they were particularly interested in it after the last bull market because like, obviously it was all over the place and people, they were obsessed with it. Um, and they just wanted to hear more and more about it. So like, I feel like I'm actually in a weird position as a, like as a financial planner, especially somebody who's a reg like registered as an investment advisor, where you, it's actually some, one of these things where you're not even acting in the client's best interest, even though we claim to be, because we can't really talk about this as an asset class because it's right. not something that like we can be compliant about yet. Um, so from that perspective, and Pierre and I were talking about some of this stuff last night about how much SEC involvement should really be happening and let's say these ICOs and other things. Um, and like, I think that some language does need to come down, right? Because like, Maybe I don't know necessarily about like the unregistered securities part, but I know for for like what I do and for registered investment advisors, like if I put Bitcoin in my ADV, which is my regulatory brochure, I would have like tons of issues getting that approved. Um, and so therefore, I can't like, uh, actually like solicit that as an investment. You know, I mean, Robert Higgs talks about uh, regime uncertainty all the time, and this is this is a good example of of that that in progress. Yeah, and, and the flip side is um, I was listening to Mark Yusko, who is like a traditional finance guy who has also gotten really interested in Bitcoin. And he he got an investment from like a fireman or a police officer's um, pension fund. And he he was talking with the guys and, and he was like, well, it's your fiduciary responsibility to, to be invested in uh in something that is this big at this point, like mm -hmm. granted, you know, not right, right. scale as stocks, but with all this in mind, this actually, and, and based on the fact that you say that Ramit has been a Bitcoin skeptic for a while, mm -hmm. that actually makes me dislike this even more because if he was someone who, uh, he, he doesn't know much about it, clearly like Ramit has had the time to learn about Bitcoin and he has chosen not to, 
or something else. If he was someone who is just like, he doesn't pay attention at all. And suddenly he has a flood of people um, asking about it. And he does not have, uh, you know, actionable advice or, you know, something because of you know, compl compliance issues or whatever, it would make sense to be like, look, this seems crazy. I don't know, whatever. Like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be ragging on someone as much um, yeah. perhaps, but yeah. if you've known about it for years and you've seen this thing grow, uh, and you're still, you know, shitting on it, uh, in that way, uh, <laughs> that just, uh, it, it just, it grinds my gears. Um, there's tons of misinformation now, right out there. So I think that one of the things where it's like stocks, for instance, are, they're very old asset class that people know about, right? So like when yeah. you go to a financial planner and you walk into a financial planner's office, right? Like maybe we differ, let's say on like passive versus active management, right? But we're not going to differ as, as to like whether or not you should have any stocks in your portfolio. Whereas like right now, because Bitcoin is such a new asset class, right? When you go and get advice from somebody, they don't really know where they're supposed to be getting the information from. There are a lot of seem, what seems like respectable people out there pushing all of these things about what like blockchain technology in and of itself can do and how it's going to change the world, right? Rather than just Bitcoin. Yes. Um, and, and, you, and like, I think that it's really difficult as a consumer to know who to listen to um, as far as the stuff. It's like, it's actually almost a marketing problem, I think, from like, from Bitcoin's perspective, because like, right, I know like the core Bitcoin core, right, is they're developers. They're not really out there to like promote Bitcoin or everything else. But like maybe they, there really does need to be somebody doing that in a way that's like constructive, um, because I like you know, what, what's nice. happening right like now is like there's a culture around this that's like not something that people actually feel like they want to be a part of necessarily on the yeah. outside of it. Um, and and then like the culture around what's happening and let's say the ICO community is like, it's, it's very whitewashed and things that people actually maybe appeal to certain people's senses where they feel like they are getting the right information. It'd be nice if there was like a, uh, sort of a Bitcoin advisory of sorts. <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? Or but, you, you go know, to it, to get yeah. some information. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is like, anyone in the world is free to follow Bitstein on Twitter. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true for sure. Yeah. And the other thing is that now there's um, there's a social analytics company called Hive.1 that is taking because like all of these altcoins, they always create uh, giant fake networks of supporters on Twitter so that it looks like they have a bunch of supporters and they're using like advanced data analysis to be able to just, OK, let's remove that. Uh, let's just focus on organic engagement. And then let's rank people by how much organic engagement they have. Uh, it ends up always looking very good for for Bitcoin and and not so well for the uh, astroturfers. But do they spell Hive properly? Yeah, surprisingly yes. enough, they spell Hive <laughs> H I V E dot one. Um, I'm getting a little sick of all these startups spelling misspelling things. Like yeah. I just feel like how are you <laughs> supposed to find them? <laughs> Michael, I don't know if they have this in Austin, but here in New York, the most egregious one, it's an ambulance service. It's terrible. It's they, called Ambulance. Yeah, they spelled it completely wrong. So if you actually need to like get access to this I ambulance. really need an ambulance. Oh, yeah. sorry. We're in Ambulance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you can't spell it. And I remember, so I was listening to Peter McCormack's podcast, and he kept saying, um, that's spelled consensus with a U. 
And I didn't realize that there was a consensus with a Y. So I was like, do I not know how to spell consensus? Why does he keep saying that? I just felt really weird. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, there, there used to be that uh, Twitter account, Modern Seinfeld. Do you remember this? No. Uh, no. Oh, it was, a, it was an incredible Twitter account. I don't know if it's still running, uh, but they would come up with funny Seinfeld plots uh, if uh, Seinfeld w- was on the air today. And... Uh, I feel like that show should exist. There's, there's so much ridiculousness <laughs> like that. Um, I yeah, guess we've just got to make we, sure we do have Silicon Valley. Uh, that that show kind of, you know, makes fun of uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Although what what time was in Silicon Valley? It was no longer funny. Joke's <laughs> <laughs> <I hope> so. <laughs> all right. Any last questions, Michael? No, I think I'm good. So I think we all decided 98%. At least. <laughs> okay. North of 98% and only you, 1% in stocks. Why don't you put the Vanguard um, link for people to check their risk tolerances in the show notes? We'll do that. Because one of the things that I like about that one in particular is that it asks you when you need your money. Yeah. So even if you're like one of these people who has the willingness off the charts... It does have some ability questions in there. And some, I, I know like in the financial planning community itself, it's like we can bicker for days about willingness and ability and what means more. But honestly, sometimes I think, like I think particularly with you, with your audience, ability is actually the issue here. Yeah, yeah. People people overextend themselves and then they get into issues that way. Uh, the, can I the just willingness... reiterate a couple of points yeah. about ability? So for ability, like... You're not taking money. You don't need this money for seven plus years would be the number one thing. Your income is stable, right? Like income stable is actually, it would be high, ranked more highly versus income is unstable would be ranked more, more lowly. Um, your, the actual amount of experience you have investing. So if you just started investing yesterday, right? Like you haven't been through market cycles. You don't know what that feels like, right? So like that would rank more lowly on ability versus like you've been through multiple market cycles. You have more ability to like withstand a market cycle. Um, these are all things to be thinking about that people don't think about when they're just excited about an investment opportunity and they have willingness off the charts. Yeah, you you get um, desensitized to the market cycles, like especially in Bitcoin because they're so extreme and they've happened relatively frequently that I've seen now with this last man. one, it was like, oh, this is a bear market. It's over. What are we talking about? It only had three thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. You're like always waiting. It's like, what are we going to go down to eighty or what? Like, yeah. <laughs> people um, keep going around. They're they're bull. They're bearish numbers. They're like extremely bullish. It's yeah. like I'm still trying to get my mind around. It's like, whoa, Bitcoin is at three thousand dollars. <laughs> Um, and you know, to, uh, uh, placate Morgan while still, uh, being a ridiculous maximalist, uh, I, I don't know if you can do it on Vanguard, but I know that, uh, Jeff Vandrew has his, uh, Bitcoin IRA, uh, scheme. So you can, you can invest in an IRA and then put that into I don't Bitcoin. I think he's going to appreciate you calling it a scheme, Michael. <laughs> That has a certain connotation. Does, does that? Okay. I'm, well, the thing that's actually I don't nice work with compliance. IRA. I just use words that sound <laughs> yeah. good. The thing that's nice about the IRA is, right, it's like you can't touch that money really until you're 59 and a half anyway. So if you're young right now, that's a really good way to asset liability match. You're not going to touch this for a long period of time. That's a good place to be putting it. Again, though, maybe you don't want to put your entire IRA. Maybe you want to put a portion of your IRA. 98% of the IRA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... 
Um, yeah, all things to be thinking about because like, you know, that could be worth quite a bit. Um, and then the rebalancing, right, is a lot. It, may, it doesn't have tax consequences to rebalancing when mm -hmm. you're looking at an IRA. So you can actually be a little more quick to rebalance if it goes outside the bands of something that you feel is comfortable for you. Great. All right. Thanks for coming on. And um, I'm sure we'll have you back on. Oh, well, one last thing. We, we, we had a, a question um, that we'll address in a future episode with you, uh, which is when, when someone comes and hits you up for money, oh. how to respond to that? Because there was an incident where Brian Armstrong uh, had a friend <laughs> ask him for, for a bailout and uh, Brian had some choice words for him. But we'll discuss that in a future episode. That's to keep our audience listening. Otherwise, they unsubscribe oh, from yeah, that. Gotta, like, really yeah, we've got to hook something. Them. Yeah. yeah. A little cliffhanger. <laughs> uh, any last words of wisdom or advice? Yeah, where, where can people find you online? Yeah. Yeah, Besides so I'm here. on Twitter. I'm at Morgan with an E, Rochard. Uh, we were talking about we should change our names so that people can actually find us. I would be Peter Richard. <laughs> I would be Morgan with an A, Richard. <laughs> but yeah it's morgan with an e rochard um i also have money owners podcast it's um at money underscore owners um i'm not gonna um give you my uh registered investment advisor because that's solicitation um but if you google me you can find it wait can i give it no please don't um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm also, I answer questions on my podcast all the time. So if something rang really true to you in here and you wanted it answered live on the podcast, um, you can shoot me a note, um, on Twitter, or you can actually go to my website, moneyowners.com. There's a little tab that says ask Morgan, click in there, type in your question. Um, or you can even be added to my email list. I just send out emails twice a month, letting you know the podcast is out. Nothing crazy. Um, How can you send out a great, great infographics. Oh yeah, yeah. I do send out great infographics. That's from my um, financial planning firm, though. So oh, um, that's if you want to do that, that, that has nothing to just, do with what we're talking about here. Yeah, just Google me, and then you can you yeah. actually can subscribe on my website. Well, you know, the good news is because you have <laughs> names that people can't uh, get if they manage to spell it right. The SEO is great. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Actually, that's a good point. Um, and speaking of, so there was this woman. My maiden name is Beck. And there was this woman, um, Morgan Beck, and she spelled it with an A, and she ended up marrying Bodie Miller. Um, and she's this, like, hot, blonde, like, six-foot-tall volleyball player who, like, was in the Olympics. And she used to get all my emails because people would spell my name wrong, and she had Morgan with an A Beck before. And, like, literally she sent me, like, an email one time that was like, hey, this is, like, for a job. I think you might need this. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind like, of that's it. really nice of you yeah. thank you yeah <laughs> yeah well thanks right. so much for uh, joining all right yeah thanks for having me on happy to come on anytime thanks for coming on bye folks bye Jocko like you many leaders began as rebels <laughs> Jocko's a rebel I'll tell you about his band one day how did you learn to see oh, when the I game was a kid? yeah man that Elgin told you about yeah man and that you told me about too how did you learn to see the game and our rule followers at a disadvantage okay so yeah I was a rebellious youth <laughs> and you know when I got 
in the SEAL teams, I was kind of a rebel, a rebel as well. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it from a certain perspective, being in special operations, especially when I came in, being in special operations is almost a form of rebellion in its own right. Because mm-hmm. you're saying, look, the regular stuff, I'm going to do the regular stuff. Right, right. I'm going to do the other stuff. Yeah. So that was my attitude. You know, I thought, oh, regular Navy, nah. I'm doing this, you know, so that was my rebellion. And 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 like I've explained before, joining the military, I grew up in in New England, not a lot of not a huge military proponent up there. Mm. And so that was it was almost a rebellious thing. As a matter of fact, it was a rebellious thing for me to join the military in the first place. So these are the kind of things that were rebellious. And yes, we were we were my buddies and me were rebel youth <laughs> with some rebellious rock and roll bands back in the day. So when I got to the SEAL teams, we actually were, I kind of maintained that, you know, like we're going to be hardcore. We're going to be, maybe the word isn't rebel, but we were, we were like outsiders, you know, we were like going hard. And the group of guys I was with, when the guys I went through SEAL training with that went to SEAL team one with me back in the day, uh, (laughs) You know, we, we, we were getting after it. We yeah. were pushing hard. We were, you know, being hardcore. And I actually got told to stand down a few times for doing stuff that was a little bit too hardcore. <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, so you get these evaluations in mm. the in the Navy. When I first got in the Navy, they had this old evaluation system where you had 15 things you were getting evaluated on. Mm. And everybody, it, it had been um, an inflation. So the highest grade you could get is a 4.0. Mm-hmm. So it was inflation of the grades at mm-hmm. the time. And so everyone just put 4.0 for everything, mm-hmm. pretty much. And I actually, I have this. I actually saved this evaluation of me, but I got a 3.8 mm-hmm. in team building. And the guy that gave it to me said, uh, you know, you're just... You're just too hard on people that are unsat, <laughs> which, which I actually, he was one of the guys that I was like, you know, hard well, on. Yeah, I was hard on him a couple times. <laughs> so, and unsat, I used to use that word all the time. Yeah. yeah sat or unsat. Jeremy uses that a yeah. lot too. So that was sort of, you know, we were, we were rebelling by being super hardcore, I guess you could say. But then, even though I was rebellious. And again, that's a strong word. I don't know if that's the word we were to. It's, I don't know if that's the perfect word, but I did. I love the SEAL teams, right? So, in and in working for some of the great guys that I work for, I realized that if you want to impact the teams, which I want to do because I did love the teams, then you got to try and get into some kind of leadership position. You know, mm. these guys that I respected that I worked for said, hey, "Wait, that guy controls this platoon. Mm. I want to do that. He's helping us. He's making us good." So. Kind of like that old quote that the best form of revenge is success. It's almost like the best form of rebellion is success. Mm. And so that's what I kind of went for to a situation. I was trying for a situation where I could move forward and kind of bring this, hey, I got this now. This is my platoon, you know. So I I guess that was a little bit of a – it was a little bit simplified. But – you know, I don't want again. I don't want to make it sound like I was some kind of crazy rebel in the SEAL teams. I wasn't. Yeah. I was. I was into the SEAL teams. I was into right. doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and I wanted to 
do do my best in the SEAL team. So I guess that's not really being rebellious at all. But I did still have some of that rebel mindset. And one of the things I think is beneficial about having a rebel mindset is you question things. Right, right. You question things. You're not allowed to. You're. I was never afraid to say no or I don't agree with that. I was never afraid to be contrarian or something. I was never afraid to hold the line and take criticism. So that goes even if if you're in a group of rebels and you go against them, who's the rebel now? Mm. Well, you are. Right, so right. when guys were going down a certain path, I wouldn't I'd be okay holding the line against them because I was okay with being an outsider. I guess that's the word I've been looking for, like an yeah. outsider, someone that's not quite just following right, and, right. and doing what everyone else is doing. I've always been okay with being an outsider. So maybe it's not necessarily a rebel, yeah. but being an outsider and like, okay, those guys are doing it that way. No, I, I don't agree with that. And I'm okay being over here by myself, marching to my own drum, for yeah. lack of a better word. But it's kind of like only if you need to be kind thing, right? What do you mean? Like, if everyone's doing the right thing, you're going to go yeah, yeah, with that sure. and you're going to, you know, go hard, you know, the way you do. But, yeah, you're not just like this follow the, in, fall, right, fall in line, right. you know. And I never, I would say that's something. And so if we categorize that as being rebellious, then yes. I kind of, I, I would more categorize it with being comfortable with being an outsider. Yeah. Comfortable with my own uh, decision-making process. So... And not always. I mean, there was times where I did things that other, you know, when I was younger, you're not, that's another thing when, um, you know, you hear me talk, I'm 44 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I spent my whole adult life in the SEAL teams. I didn't show up in the SEAL teams with like this incredible leadership capability yeah, and ready yeah. to write a book. No, man, I learned this stuff. I'm, yeah. le- I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning this stuff. I picked stuff off along the way. So I don't want people to ever think that, you know, I was a superstar. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. You know, I'm still not. I'm just. I have an open mind, but now I can look back. Yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough to have some great jobs and some great experiences that opened a lot of. Uh, it showed me. I learned a lot. I, I, I had an open mind, and the world taught me a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's but fun. it wasn't. It wasn't just like, hey, I was showed up there but i would say this the lead people that are out there that are leaders keep the rebel alive keep them alive keep them under control yeah and maybe you don't let the rebel talk to other people <laughs> right <laughs> maybe and I've, I've had seal buddies that do this where they're they're rebellious is they're as outsider or whatever the word we're using as I am, but they just can't keep it inside. So they're verbalizing it. And they're and what are they doing? They're making enemies. Yeah. They're making they're they're antagonizing people. Mm-hmm. They're doing that. I never did that because I'm yeah. playing the game. I'm gonna yeah. win the long term strategic goal. Yeah. So don't let the rebel be the one that represents you and talks and opens your mouth. But let him whisper in your ear. Right. And listen to him. Yeah, I talk, to my, good policy. I talk to my wife a lot about the difference. There's a difference between what you think or what you feel or whatever and what how you behave. So, like, you can, like, if you, I don't know, you get cut off in traffic or something. No one's going to be mad at you if you're, like, mad at that or if that irritates you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you start flipping the guy off or, or, or violating traffic laws to go chase him or do, you know, start behaving 
because he cut you behaving in a certain way, then that that's wrong. So there's a difference. You can feel like all kinds of stuff. But it, once you start misbehaving, that's when the violations come up. So that's yeah. basically what you're saying. Like yeah. don't don't let him control your drive control your yourself. Yeah. Your behavior. Mind control. I think we've talked about that on here before. A little body, bit of mind control. Body control too. Yeah, the like just being a rebel, typically that's like Hey, all these rules that everyone's following, I'm gonna I rebel against those rules. Right, but right. here's the thing: some of those rules are good rules. Exactly. So you can't just be a rebel to so be a not rebel. So a blanket statement. Yeah. I'm a rebel, and that's right. why that's why I was kind of pulling back on that word. Yeah. It makes me sound like a I was big rebel. I was right. not. I was I I loved being the teams. Right. So why would I rebel against it? Yeah. The people I rebelled against were the guys that were not good seals. We rebelled against them. Like I told you, we had a mutiny. Sure. That was yeah. a rebellion. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a straight yep. rebellion. Yeah. Had a real legit mutiny. Yeah. And went against our commanding, our, our platoon commander mm-hmm. and said, hey, to this commanding officer said, no, hey, we don't want this guy anymore. That's that's a rebel. Yeah, we rebelled. But, they, but then yep. again, everyone in my platoon was with me. So we all right. rebelled. So then was I a rebel? I don't know. Yeah. And does that make you a rebel just because you rebelled at one time? You know? Yeah. I get, think we're getting into too much semantics, aren't we? I don't know. Semantics kind of part of it. Let's not go there. All right. All right. Next question. Next question. <laughs>